And good morning. Andy is taking this holiday weekend off. Our friend Barry Strands is filling in. Uh, this is going to be an extravaganza today. An extravaganza, Danny. Not, not, Whenever you're in, it's going to be an extravaganza, <laughs> yeah, sir. Sure. Uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> the first hour is Barry. The second hour is Barry. He has uh, agreed to uh, to put in uh, some overtime today. We appreciate that. Yeah, well, you know, it's exciting just to be uh, in studio with you, sir. So happy well, to do whatever I can to help. Well, uh, you had uh, probably an interesting drive and walk in. Well, you? my goodness, you guys were talking about the weather, and I'm like, I was out there living. What time? It was dry when you came in this morning. Or early, yeah. So yeah. you came in, I don't know, 4 o'clock in the morning, whenever you guys yeah. came in. And I'm driving over thinking, number one, I couldn't even scrape my windshields without feeling like I could land on my fanny mm-hmm. really quick. It's just treacherous out there. It's like there was a blanket of ice over everything. And then driving, I hit one stop sign in a you know residential neighborhood going about 12 miles an hour and put the brakes on. And it was like, who needs brakes? You know, because I'm sliding right through. It doesn't make any difference. No, we, we there was no cross traffic, but it was one of those weird feelings like, uh, I got nothing, no traffic uh, traction whatsoever at all. No, that's, we talked about that on the car show early this morning. I don't care if you've got a big four-wheel drive. Talk about ABS. If once you start sliding, doesn't make any yeah. difference. Yeah, yeah. It was so it was, it was crazy. And then even downtown here, just coming across the sidewalk, it's like uh, you cannot hurry. And I'd hit every light and then had to scrape. And I'm like, I'm running a few minutes late. And then as I came across this, the street, I'm like, you know what? If I try to make a hard left turn to get in the front yeah. door, I'm going to be all over anyway. So, yeah, it's, be careful out there, folks, yeah. we if urge, you're downtown yeah. anyway. We've been urging our listeners all morning long not to drive or walk if they don't have to. Yeah, be smart. you know. And what a great morning after Christmas to just kind of sit in, listen yeah. to the radio, make another cup of coffee, and enjoy time with Danny and, and Barry. Think, think about uh, home improvement. Home improvement. I was wondering, you know, because my schedule's been a little crazy. Um, I quit my job. I, people know that now, I think. And uh, I didn't work in December. But my kids then were like, well, Dad, you're going to have some time. So um, what are you doing for Christmas? I'm like, well, you know, I'll go to the shop. What do you want? So I just kind of polled everybody and said, you know, you just tell me what you want and I'll see what I can do. So you made your gifts. So I made Christmas presents this year. What is that? Yeah, well, it was fun. And after my daughters got married this summer, two daughters got married to two brothers, oddly enough. They wanted some stuff for their display and for their table and stuff. So I made a bunch of these reclaimed lumber, I don't know, set up pieces. And it was a lot of fun in the shop. And I've had all this pallet lumber I'd picked up. And thought, well, what can I do with this? And so I just began to make some of these different reclaimed lumber pieces. And and then one of my kids, he's like, well, you know, Dad, you know what I really want? It's a writing desk. Mm. And I'm like, sure, writing desk, writing desk, writing desk. Let's see. I got a writing desk in my wheelhouse. I can do that. You know, I've got a week and a half. And then uh, about three days before Christmas, four days before Christmas, my 17-year-old daughter had not weighed in. I said, you know, Amy, you, you know, if you don't tell me what you want for Christmas, you're getting squat. You know, <laughs> butkus is going to be what you get. If you, I told you, you got to tell me what you want. Oh, well, I would take a desk. So everybody wants a so desk. So I'm like, oh, all right. So I got two desks to make. I can do that. So, so you have yet to do this. No, no, it's, they're done. Well, they're done. Yeah. Well, yeah. you have a little extra time now to do that. Well, you know, it's 12 or 14 hours in the shop every day. But, you know, so my Christmas season was maybe busier than it would have been had we gone shopping. But my wife said to me, I'm so grateful you're making presents this year because that means I don't have to go shop. Yeah. And yeah. so she avoided a lot of that. And, but that means so much more, too. Oh, I hope so. And, you know, my son, my old the son who wanted the desk, I had some white oak that had come off a job site. And it was quarter sawn white oak. And he's the only one I know who would really appreciate that in the whole household. So... It was like, yeah, so he's got this solid oak, quarter sawn oak writing desk. And I got the drawers wrapped up yesterday. And wow. Yeah, so, so yeah, it was kind of fun. 
Well, I tell you, you get a lot of new listeners this time of year, uh, the show, and folks that said, uh, Barry, who's this Barry guy? Let's yeah. back up, because you've been in uh, in, in the uh, uh, construction business for, what? Yeah, 1972, yeah. Danny. Yeah. Uh, you know, it goes way back. And some people are like, I'm, I wasn't born in the, I wasn't even a figment of someone's imagination in 72. And I was actually starting my career in the construction business. And my grandfather offered me $1.75 an hour, and he said, come be a carpenter. And you know how people are when they're family. They lie to you about stuff like that. <laughs> You're the Sherpa who's, who's hauling yes. stuff around the job site. Yes. And my world was then to do whatever he didn't really want to do. So we tarred foundations with you know buckets of tar. And in the wintertime, you'd heat them over a 55-gallon drum that you filled with scrap lumber, and you kept the tar. You weren't thinking about having a fire. You were just thinking, you know, we'll heat the tar up, and we can tar the foundation. It was all done by hand back in the day. There were no pneumatic tools. Nobody had air yeah, tools. it's true. So I learned, you know, I learned to cut rafters back in hand-frame roofs before trusses were normal, and I learned to do, you, use a, a rafter square and cut the hip and no, valley did rafters. Did he teach you that, or yeah, no, on he did. the job? He, he was the guy. Well, on the job. You know, it wasn't like we were doing classes. He'd say, yeah. all right, here's how you use the square. Now you try it. And, you know, so you, he had that great methodology of saying, watch me, listen to me, and then do it with me. And now you do it on your own. And a wonderful d- development of trade skills where you then yeah. had the chance to practice. And the worst case scenario was you'd cut a piece of lumber the wrong length and you'd have to do it again. But that's where you got the measure twice cut <laughs> once mindset right. kind of you know, put back into you. And, and I was arrogant enough that I thought that once I get to the place where I can nail as fast as he can, I'm worth as much as he is. And had no – I'm so just stupid <laughs> teenage had, kid who thought signed. that pace – was the equivalent of, of wisdom. And, you know, if I could make pace, I thought, well, that makes me really valuable. And he's like, well, yeah, you're valuable at nailing. Now, take a blueprint and read the print and tell me where the wall goes. <laughs> well, I don't know what oh, to do wow. with this. <laughs> so you really you know? had to do that. So, well, yeah. And by the time I was 19, I was his lead framer. I have a pretty good brain. It's not the best brain in the world, but a good brain. And I'm spatial, so I can see things pretty easily. And so by the time I was 19, I was going to college in Kansas, and I would come home for summertime, and I would work in, in the job site on houses he was working on. And, and then finally, he had a mild heart attack after my junior year of college, and he's like, hey, you want to come back in and run the family oh. business? And, and so I never went back from my senior year of college. So wow. three years of college, not four. Not, I don't have a degree in speech communications. But look, also, <laughs> but here but I am like, talking making, on the radio, using my speech communication educational background, and making, making my mother great, happy, uh, great Christmas gifts too, and having fun. We got to take a break. Let's come back. Uh, we'll find out more about uh, Barry Strands. Well, we'll take calls too, and we'll do that. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. You have uh, any kind of a home improvement question? This is the guy you want to chat with, or send a text. Same number applies. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. Good morning. Welcome back to our Home Improvement Show. If you have that kind of a question, call us, text us. Barry Strands is with us. We'll uh, find, out, find out more about Barry's background. He's got a great background. You're a teacher, too, and we will find out about sure. that. Uh, we have a caller on, uh, let's see, Dan is calling from YZ, I believe. Dan, you're on CCO. Good morning. Hey, guys. Hey, don't go southbound on 494, south to 394. You'll never get to where you want to go. Good it's, to know, Dan. Stop. Still packed. It's, yep. Yeah, semi trucks perpendicular to the road. Oh man! Uh, so uh, yeah, my buddy wants to buy a house to flip, and it has a lot of mold in the basement. Okay, so what's a great way for mold remediation? It's probably a long answer, and I well, the time certainly sure. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, how do you know how old the house is? I think it was built in nineteen fifty. 
All right. So the question for me is always it's, it's mold needs food and it needs water and it needs temperature to be activated. And the key question is, what was the source and how do we remediate the problem that causes the mold to grow? So topical removal of mold with chemical solutions are pretty effective these days. It can be scrubbed and cleansed and we can solve it that way. But we've got to address the issue of what caused the issue in the first place. And typically that's a moisture-related issue. So around foundations, if it's a clay soil type, there's things that we can do to move water away from the foundation. But in a block foundation in circa 1950, you need to be aware of keeping that thing dry. And if it had been a typical tar coating on the foundation or possibly nothing at all, then that foundation wall is subject to a continual wetting. And if it continues to get wet, then we have the same issues with mold coming down the road. Until we remediate the moisture source, we've got to solve that before we can actually have a mold solution long term. So, you know, everything comes out of that basement space. Typically, we cleanse the walls and the floors, the surfaces, and throw away any moldy materials and then start over again once we solve the water problem. I mean, that's the, you know, bullet point nutshell version of what we do with mold situations. But we've got to solve the water problem. Yep. First, first things first. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for the report too. That's kind of what we're doing. As a yeah, let's take make, make sure people are aware of what's going on out there. Yeah. Because if you had some plan today and didn't know what you were getting into, it's going to be a completely different driving experience than when you anticipated. The word is don't. Don't. <laughs> if you don't have to, don't. Yeah. Don't exactly. I'm thinking a donut run. Don't need one this no, morning. No, 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 no. Uh, this uh, text came in a, a couple of minutes ago. I live in Shorewood, and our city plow truck just went into the ditch. So this is, this is the kind of situation Ouch. we're having out yeah. there. Um, although another Texas crew seem to have gotten out in St. Paul, in West St. Paul. That's good. Uh, let's see. Uh, another text. Just got to downtown St. Paul from Egan, creeping up Robert. Noted semi sideways on 494 near 52, blocking in both directions. Wow. There's more evidence. Don't drive. Yeah. Don't get out yeah. there. All right. Uh, if you have any kind of a home improvement question, this is, uh, this is the guy you want to chat with, as I said. Call it in or text it in, same number, 651-989-9226. All right. Here's a question for you. Is there a way to install canister lights in a kitchen without having to go up in the attic? Yeah, we have what's our, what are called remodeler cans, which means we can cut a hole from the inside of a space and shove the can up into that space behind the drywall in a cavity of a joist or stud cavity. I should say joist or rafter cavity. The question, of course, is how do we get the wiring up there? So normally we have to find a, a power supply to a switch, and that'll be a couple of drywall holes that will allow you to get to a drill location at the top plate and pull a wire up into that space and then come across into a joist cavity or a a rafter cavity. The problem then is to get across those. Whenever you're running perpendicular to those cavities, you've got to drill through those joists. So it's drywall repair. And most people think of drywall repair as a big deal. I don't anymore. You don't. I, it just doesn't. It's just drywall. And drywall is taping. And people who don't know how to tape drywall are looking at that and going, yeah, taping is a big deal. But when I hire a pro, they're going to come out and they're going to use what's called hot mud, which is a, a quick setting joint compound. And they'll three coat in a day and have results that look great. And as a result, it's, uh, I mean, in my, many cases, it's easier to take a sheet of drywall off the ceiling or cut a slot in the drywall and then patch it. And then you're able to put cans in exactly where you want to and do it from inside that space. Mm-hmm. Again, most people get really nervous about cutting their ceiling open. They're like, oh, we don't want to do that. Now, if it's popcorn, <laughs> if it's a popcorn ceiling, yeah. and by that I mean it's a spray texture yeah. ceiling with vermiculite inside, you, those are tougher to match. You can blast over the top of that. That's an ideal. But that stuff's junk anyway, and most folks would prefer to have that scraped off and redone in the first 
first place. Which is so, a messy job. Well, and which is why I tell people, cut the drywall off and start over again. Yeah. I have the ceiling open, run the cans in place, re-drywall and tape it. And for a couple of grand... You know, you normally can get that done by a professional, so it's not that big a deal. I don't mean everything. I mean just mean the right. drywall part of it. But drywall's not that very expensive. You're looking at 12 bucks a sheet for a 4 by 12 sheet of drywall. It's not that hard to do that. Now, you and I have talked about this over the years, uh, and the, the complaint with a lot of construction folks is, where, where, where are these kids? Where, where are we going to have the workers the, in the trades? They're not, are, has that changed at all? That well, you know, there are programs that are growing that are giving people new opportunities. And I just had a, someone sent me an email about an opportunity to teach at high school in a construction trades program. I think that there's a growing awareness that everybody shouldn't be on the college track the way we've perceived it in the last 20 years. Sure, That's just not everybody's skill set. It's not everybody's interest level. And at the same time, if you're interested in technology, most people don't think of the skilled trades as technologically advanced. And I think there's a lot to be said for what people who enjoy working with their hands can actually do and create in terms of meaningful business and meaningful work. I mean, there's so much that's going on out there. And the problem, of course, is it takes some time to get skilled enough to be able to demand a price tag that, that, that feels like it's an equivalent wage to what, uh, what a professional would be making who's working in, in, a, in an IT sector, for example. But people running their own companies are easily making 100 grand a year. Right? Yeah. It's not you know, the end of the world. And as we lose people from the industry, the opportunities just continue to abound. I mean, Absolutely. right now, we're just or, and there's a stranglehold over uh, framing carpentry really? for high-end houses. We just can't find framers. It's just a really, really difficult thing. And the ones that are out there who can build a 5,000-square-foot home, who have the skill set to do something like that, they're booked. And people who can look Probably at their docket years. and saying, you know, I've got, you know, I got five houses I'm going to do in 2020, and I want that framing crew. That crew's not going to be working any, for anybody else in 2020. They're going to be working on those five houses. So, yeah, it's, it's a battlefield and a challenge, and it's one that, as I, as I look into the crystal ball of what the future looks like, people would be wise to just examine, you know, hey, this is my kid. You know, they're 9 or 10 years old, and they're, they're looking at life, and you're thinking, well, how do I want to direct them? And most people are thinking, I want my kid to make great money, be a doctor doctor, be a lawyer. Right. But if that's just not where their skill set is or, or where their interests lie, uh, the construction trades are going to provide tremendous opportunity. And lots of training programs becoming more and more available. And I think it's just important to see it. And then if you've got, let's say there's been a troubled background and you, there's some, a program uh, in Minneapolis for folks who have just interest in the trades, but their whole background has been messy and, and, uh, and they need to develop basic skills. And I'm looking at that and thinking, they'll teach you everything from how to read a tape measure to what the tools are, how to build basic, cut basic framing materials. And, and then you actually, part of the curriculum at this place, they actually have you building a little miniature house. Hmm. So you have to actually get the physical skills and then you're prepared to get out into the job site in an entry-level position as a framing carpenter. But as far now, as the trades go, Barry, uh, you can make a good living. I, you know, I think it's hard to understand that, that that's the case because we, we look through the wrong lens. We think, oh, well, yeah. maybe you can make 20 bucks an hour. It's like, well, starting labor is 20 bucks an hour now in this area. It wouldn't be maybe in Texas, but it is in Minneapolis area. Hmm. Wow. So, Tell you what, let's uh, go to the phones. Catherine is calling this morning from, uh, let's see, Blaine, I believe. Catherine, you're on with Barry. Good morning. How are you? Hi, Catherine. Good. Just great. Happy New Year. Good. Happy New Year to you. Um, I have a question about radon. Sure. Um, my, we have a house that we're selling in, in Maple Grove, and um, it has been the inspector has come through and said that the radon is like at a 10. Now, is this something that should be 
I mean, uh, would the city of Maple Grove have any information on this, or do they know about this radon thing in the in the area? I, I guess I don't know anything really about that. So if I, you could help me a little bit, sure. I'd appreciate it. Catherine, the Minnesota Department of Health is probably the best source, and MDH is online. You can go to their website and research radon. Their position is going to be similar to what uh, federal government says at the EPA, which is any house above 4.0 picocuries per liter of air needs to be mitigated against these elevated levels of radon. And World Health Organization has been pushing to get that level to drop down to 2.7 picocuries, and a 10 would be considered high by many people's uh, understanding. The issues with radon, of course, is the University of Minnesota was testing. They found that you couldn't predict in the soils where radon might break the surface and come into a home. And so you can't say that every house in a neighborhood, let's say, is going to have a similar level of radon because one house does. The pressures inside that home, the access points through typically the foundation walls and the basement floor are all part of the reason that one house has a higher level of radon than the house right next door to it. Even though what's taking place in the soils might be much the same, the actual presentation of radon volume in a home will be different. So there are other people probably out there that uh, don't have as much of a hearing that would argue that radon's part of the natural uh, breakdown of uranium-238 in the soils, and as a result, that radon exists in the air that we breathe in smaller amounts, obviously, and therefore a little bit of radon is not that big a deal. But depending on who you talk to, you'll get wide-ranging opinions about the severity of what the number 10 would mean in terms of equivalency relative to numbers of packs or cigarette smoking during the day. I was reading a report by Stanford University, I think it was released around 2001, and they argued that radon is far more damaging to people who smoke cigarettes. And they Mm. they said that you're 1,500 times more likely to experience uh, damage to your lung tissue from radon if you're a smoker than if you're a non-smoker. And so they just postulated at the end of the report whether the radon was primarily a smoker's problem. And again, if you go into the U of M, they would say, no, 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 no. It's everybody's problem. Radon is a big deal for everybody. Everyone needs to be paying attention to the levels of radon inside their homes. Um, so uh, there's differences of opinion out there. They need to be just paid attention to. All right. All right. We need to take a break. A reminder that Barry's going to be with us uh, not only this hour, but next as well. So it's a, as I said, it's a, an extravaganza of home improvement talk here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Good morning. Welcome back to our uh, Home Improvement Show. Not just one hour, but two today. Thanks to Barry Strands filling in for Andy Lindis today. Uh, If you have uh, any kind of a home improvement question, call it in or text it in. Barry would be glad to field it for you. Uh, again, either by phone Otherwise, or I'm going to give you the history of residential construction <laughs> at the uh, 10 o'clock hour. So, <laughs> because <laughs> when, when ask we, questions is better. <laughs> well, we have a moment, too. I want to get back to, uh, to, to some background, your teaching background, because I think that's very interesting, too. However, we have uh, callers, we have texters to help out. Very good. Jerry, St. Paul is uh, first up here on the phone. Jerry, what's your question? Yeah, hi, gentlemen. Uh, Barry, uh, if you had a home that you wanted to waterproof a, a wall, you say you live in a, a cement block wall and it's all open and you were going to waterproof that wall yourself, uh, including any drain tile at the bottom of the wall, how would you do it? What would you use? Uh, what steps would you take to waterproof that wall? Well, Jerry, keep in mind that anything you do on the interior of the foundation wall is really on the wrong side. It's the opposite pressure face, which is why ideally you landscape the exterior. And before you do that, you, you 
put a membrane on the exterior surface of the wall. That gets cost prohibitive in existing houses, of course, so people don't do that. But on the inside of a foundation wall, the products like Drylock are, are fine. And UGL got rated by Consumer Reports a few years back as one of the best products out there. You can buy it at a home improvement center. So you can coat the surface of the wall. It won't handle any actual... Uh, liquid water coming through the wall. So it'll only be a a dampness inhibitor, if you will. And then on the interior surface, typically to do a a retrofit drain tile, we break up the first 12 to 18 inches of concrete, jackhammer it out of there, throw it away, and uh, then excavate and put down a gravel base, put drain tile tube, four-inch perforated tube down, and then uh, pound holes into the bottom of each core of blocks. Every core of block, typically a 16-inch block, has got two hollow cores, and use a hammerhead, and you tap into those spaces, and then run a cheap length of garden hose across the top of that drain tile pipe, and in the process, then put a tar paper over that, and then pour concrete over the top of that, and you got a little seam in the surface of the concrete floor, but you have a retrofit drain tile installation, and that's what most of the pros are doing to resolve problems. Now, remember, you've got to tie that sump uh, or the uh, drain tile into a sump basket. So someplace in the corner of the house, you jackhammer another foot, you know, 30 inches by 30 inch space of concrete out and then excavate for a sump basket, dump the drain tile pipe, the four inch pipe into the sump basket and then put a pump inside so it can be pumping water out to daylight. It's going to come up the exterior wall, out the rim joist typically, and then into a place that we won't be freezing something on a sidewalk, which is a really important location detail to think about before you dig the hole in the basement. But that's the process. And then once that's done, you've got something that will drain the water out of the block. You've got the block that's being... Uh, resisting water migration through that surface. And then there are a couple of different strategies to finish that space out. One of my favorites is to use a foil-faced foam, glued directly over to that uh, dry-locked wall surface, and then tape the tops and bottoms and make sure that that's perfectly uh, watertight or vapor-tight. And then you can frame a wall on the inside front of that and hang your drywall. And you wind up now with a dried walled surface You've handled the water in the block. You've handled the water coming through the block, and you've got a finished basement that works just great. You know, we talked, uh, Barry, Barry Strands is with us this morning, filling in for Andy, uh, about uh, the early, the beginnings with your grandfather and, and the work. How, along the way, have you picked up, and I assume you have, besides being teacher, uh, plumbing, electrical? I mean, do you, have you learned all that stuff on your own? Well, what, what, I would say yes and no. Let's face it. I'm, if you don't do it as a trade professional, you don't have the same skill set that sure. they would. But on my own home, I had to go to the discussion time with my wife about, you know, what can we afford to do? And I didn't want to borrow money to, to remodel our 1905 home. So I didn't want to live with the infrastructure that was part of that house. So, yeah, I went ahead and gutted everything and pulled all the existing wiring out and rewired the house. And, of course, in Minneapolis, you can do that as a homeowner. And if you're occupying the home and you own the home, you can run your own wire. But I have to have it inspected. So we ran the whole thing through and had the Minneapolis building official come in, take a look, and he was quite happy with the work that we did. It's, it's, it's weird when you think about it. I mean, you need that, the right skill set. But people who do that work, once they understand how, mostly electrical is drilling holes and pulling wire. Hooking it up at the end is the tough part. For a simple residential install, it's not that complicated. Now, when you get into three-way and four-way switching for multiple locations for lights, that gets to be a little bit interesting. And I love the manuals that are out there that are real simple wiring diagrams that can teach a guy like me how to do that. 
But today, until you start throwing low voltage into a line voltage system, it's fairly straightforward to run wiring inside a house. The problem is as a house gets bigger, it gets more sophisticated. And the more sophisticated, the more wire that's going through and the more complication exists. So you end up I would argue that you don't just increase the volume of electrical, but you create a, geogra- a geometric um, elevation of the complexity of it. So the bigger the house gets, the more complicated all the parts and pieces get as well. And that's where you're like, you know what? I can wire a simple version of this, but if I want to start doing smart switching and I need additional low-voltage wire to control those things, things are getting a lot more complicated. You get into security systems and how I want to handle that, oh, yeah. speaker wires and remote speakers. How do I want to handle those things? Do I want an Apple TV? Do I want that thing? That's a whole low-voltage scenario that requires, I think, a professional who really understands that market and the, the ways in which we can option today. So many crazy things to walk into a home and start talking to your house and telling well, you what to you do. I these smart homes. I'm, I mean, it's, it's, it's really insane. And, of course, we're, we keep dumbing that down by my – by that I mean we keep making that more accessible to the average consumer so that it's going to become less and less complicated to install more and more done with the technology itself and less that has to be done in the field on the install side, which is going to help everybody out. But the, the original smart house technologies that came out were, were mostly wired technologies. Now that we've gone to you know, radio frequency – and Wi-Fi capabilities, we're changing that whole world dramatically as well. But it's really kind of cool. And it depends on what you want your house to do and what happens if a Wi-Fi signal goes down, you don't have that access. I mean, it's like everybody assumes that we can just use our cell phone. But if the cell phone towers went down in some yeah. kind of cataclysmic scenario, do you want a hard line still inside your house so that you can run a phone line to your home? Those are the kind of things that we ask questions about now with homeowners and, and say, you know, what do you want to do? What do you think is best? How do you want to handle this? And they look typically through the cost window and say, well, what, what am I getting as the most bang for my buck? And most people make the decision to go wireless. Now, you, you have worked uh, by, with a uh, high-end home builder. Sure. Yeah, are, I, are most of the homes that you uh, were working with or with the other folks there all smart homes? No. N- no. In fact, surprisingly enough, I mean, if you spend a million dollars or a million two on a house, you're not going to be able to have the dollars, even at that number, to do a lot of high-end technologies. It's it's surprising what how I mean how little you get for a million bucks to, in today's residential world, so it's there's it's expensive to build a house and when people start looking through the lens of where do I want to put my dollars that becomes a consideration unless you're a techie and we did one it was a renovation a million dollar renovation and this guy was brilliant and he wanted smart sound inside his house and he had researched the kind of speaker boxes that supported the speakers and he wanted a resonation chamber behind every speaker and it had to be this number of cubic inches so we had to build these boxes around that part of the framing had to insulate them a certain way and that created the kind of resonance that was that was insane when he, we got it all done, and he finally, I was back over. He said, "Now I want you to hear that what this sounds like, and you'll understand why." We went to all this trouble, and he, you felt like you were on the front row of a concert that had speakers in front of you and speakers behind you, and the same. It was surround sound like nothing I'd ever heard before, and I'm like. I don't need this kind of audio, you know. To, but it was, it was, it was like going into one of the. Um, 
I don't know, Guitar Center or in one of the audiovisual displays at Best Buy and going into their sound room and listening to the sets of speakers and they get the clipshorn speakers out and you're, you're going, oh my gosh, that's what this guy's living room sounded like. And it was all invisible, speakers coming no out kidding. of the ceilings. You couldn't see a thing. Just unbelievable. We've done speakers that were hidden behind drywall where they're in the ceiling or in the floor, big bass woofers, and you can't see them. And still they're, they're transferring that sound into the space. If people want their houses to rumble because there's a bass woofer <laughs> in the floor, you can get that. The whole house is vibrating now. It's awesome what you can do today. It's just, you know, you got to be able to pay for it. All right. Barry Strands is with us this morning. Again, if you have uh, any kind of a home improvement question, this is the person you want to chat with. Or send uh, Barry a text. Same number applies, 651-989-9226. A texter says this, Barry, can I put uh, uh, epoxy resin over oil-based stain? I was going to make a bar top, but it has oil-based stain uh, on it. Epoxy resin over oil-based. The question is, is the oil-based stain covered with polyurethane or something else right now? That'd be the question. Most oil bases get some type of sealer, like Minwax, for example, makes a product line that has a polyurethane in the stain, which means that it's a stain and a sealer all in one. And when you've got a seal finish in that, then you can put epoxy over that. You're still going to want to scuff it in order to create adhesion. And that's always the case. Remember, these micro scratches are great for things to grab. And then epoxy is fine. Raw stain and epoxy, my brain has not given me a good answer there. I just stained a couple of pieces of furniture, the ones I've made for Christmas, yesterday in my shop. And if you went to a straight stain, I probably would put an intermediary coat before I do an epoxy. That's what my gut's telling me, but maybe a listener has better understanding than that. Epoxies need to be able to hit something, grab onto something. And and, uh, frankly, if it's an oil-based, like, for example, over mineral oil, I wouldn't trust epoxy over an oil finish. No adhesion. Not adhesion. I'd seal it first. Then I would put the epoxy on. Okay. 651-989-9226 is the number. Tell you what, Barry, we have to take a break. Keep in mind, Barry's going to be here next hour as well. So if you didn't get your question answered this hour, you'll have your chance with Barry next hour. Uh, Mary, hang on. You're going to be next when we come back. 651-989-9226. Welcome back to our Home Improvement Show brought to us by Lindus Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S. You want to give them a call after uh, the holiday? If you need uh, projects, uh, and that's 1-800-LEAFGUARD, the easiest number to remember. Barry Strands is in for Andy Lindis today, and we have callers, we have texters. Wonderful. So let's uh, get back to it, see who's been waiting. Well, we promised Mary. Mary in Elk River. Mary, you're on with Barry. Hi, Barry. I'm calling. We have a um, gas fireplace, and, it, you know, it was with the house when we bought it. The house was built in 1990s, um, but literally the glass covering you know so the flame isn't open sure shattered one night and we can't find well we found out the company that built them um they're no longer in business and we don't know which direction to go so i'm wondering if you can give me some information or recommend somebody to call and have them come out and take a look at it yeah, that's a great question. I'm just trying to think about who would take liability to replace the glass on a, a unit that they didn't build. If the issue is liability always, right? So my guess is you're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who wants that uh, job of replacing the glass. Instead, you'll find manufacturers who say, well, we can replace that unit you know, with one similar size, and we'll take the old one out, put the new one in, and, and do that. And I think that's probably what 
if you don't want to go wait forever to get it fixed, that's probably going to be your best option. I'm, I'm, I wish I could give you better information yeah, than that, but I, I just don't think that you're going to find very many people who want to replace the glass. If I'm wrong, I happily would have somebody who manufactures glass say, yeah, we would do that. But, man, I'm going through my inventory of glass people and, like, right now, liability is everything. And if really? it's not a sealed situation with the unit, why would anybody take the chance of putting a piece of glass in for you and then having you come back Fuck. and say there was some problem with the fireplace unit yeah. and you put the glass in and tie that company's liability back to the install. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. I don't think that would happen. That's a good point. Thanks, Mary. Good luck. Uh, Ann is calling from uh, Chicago. Ann, you are on CCO. Good morning. Good morning. This is Ann. I'm back home in Woodbury and listening. Well, I that's good. Chicago, it, it's, not, it's, what, it's wonderful. I live in Chicago. I have a house that's got log cabin siding. And it's always a pain to try. Nobody seems to know what to do with it on the outside. Sure. And also, how often should I be maintaining that? What are your ideas, please? Well, uh, it, the log cabin siding, how old is the house? And is this is a surface mounted or is it actual logs? Do you know? So it's half log. Sure. So okay. It's like an eight inch frame or 10 yeah. inch frame and half log. And it's 25 years old. I've had it done twice in my 11 years. Yeah, I mean, do you know if the logs are cedar or if they're pine or fir? I mean, to me, I, I think that you're looking at a stain finish on that surface if you want to maintain the look. And if you get get into something like a, a, a teak oil or a timber oil that's designed for that process, uh, if you're trying to avoid ultraviolet, that's a whole different discussion. But you can get the colorant in those things to avoid UV. And, and I think an oil finish is probably your best option. Okay, thank you. And what are your thoughts on UV? Well, I don't, I don't, the discoloration is all it's going to create. I'm not terribly okay. worried about it in terms of, of effectiveness of the log surface. The question is, how is it going to impact the look? And it, te- it, tendly, it tends to fade things out and you lose color on the half log. And in my mind, if you went and just applied a colored sealant over, the, over an oil-based colorant that, uh, that you apply, and probably need to do that every five or seven years to maintain a color. And I'm, in my mind, that's probably the best way to go. I, it makes sense to me to stay away from the more traditional stains, but go into something that's designed for timber. Okay. Very good. Good luck, Ann. Thank you for the call. Welcome back home. 651-989-9226. Keep in mind, Barry's going to be here. He's going to hang over next hour as well. So if you didn't get in to ask your home improvement question this hour, you have another chance. Uh, meanwhile, Ginger is calling in from uh, Forest Lake, I believe. Ginger, you're on CCO. Good morning. 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 I'm wondering, what do you know about AeroSeal? We just put in a new furnace. Sure. And we, well, new venting also. What do you is it is it a safe product to use? Sure. Yeah. AeroSeal is. Yeah, arrows, we do it on all of the houses, and it's the easiest way to meet code for new construction. When you've got a duct that moves outside the exterior uh, envelope of the home, you need to seal that duct work up. And unless you want to spray foam around all the duct work in an attic space or a crawl space, you're, you're going to have doing arrow seal. So arrow seal is done uh, basically a pressurized system that pushes this, oh boy, it's an airborne uh, material that functions like stop leak in your radiator. That's the best way I know to describe it. Now, it's, it's airborne, so you, are you pump this material through, you pressurize the ductwork, and it finds the micropores or the holes inside the ductwork and basically congeals against those locations and seals the inside of the ductwork up, and then it cures on the inside surface. So it creates this uh, like a polymer coating on the inside surface at the, at the joint locations, and so there's no air loss taking place from it. So long as you don't have, we were on one where 
where we had a installer who did something really stupid and in the process had AeroSeal going out into the bedroom because the ducts weren't sealed. This is supposed to be done into a closed system and it's, it's fantastic in what it does. And by the way, when you watch this actually being done, you can see the cubic feet per minute pressure differential taking place as the ducts get more and more and more sealed. You can watch how much more air is being held versus how much is escaping through these micropores in the duct assembly. It's amazing stuff. How do you stuff. see that? How do you test uh, They are using a computer that shows the graphic uh, on the laptop screen so you can actually see the pressure differential number CFM changing so you recognize how much, how much air loss from the ductwork is now decreasing as we tighten up that system. Wow, it's designed strange. to keep all of the air that's supposed to go to a room in the ductwork until it gets to that room, okay. as opposed to bleeding out into the framing cavity, sure. into a wall or to a, an assembly in a floor. If you don't have a sealed duct system, you have a lot of losses, and 15%, 18% losses into cavities that aren't supposed to get that warm or cold air. So they're showing up inside the floor space. Now, it's still in the house, but it's not where that air was supposed to go. As a result, the pressure differences in a bedroom, for example, can be positively pressured. And let's say you push, you know, 100 CFM air into a bedroom, and that bedroom doesn't have a return there that's pulling 100 CFM out. It's only pulling 80. Now you have a positively pressured bedroom, so now your windows become the place where you're exiting that air because your door's closed as you sleep there at night. You're pushing air in, more air that's coming out, and we end up pushing air out the windows. Huh. So we end up with inefficient housing spaces because we have pressure differentials in, in the homes. Our houses are supposed to be pressure neutral, but it's more than that. It's the rooms within our houses that need to be pressure neutral as well for our house to function at maximum efficiency. How long has this uh, stuff been around? Oh, I heard about it probably 10 years ago. Oh, it has. Okay. Yeah. All right. We've been, it's, it's becoming commonly used by HVAC technicians all over the, all over the state. Uh, again, uh, Barry's going to be with us. He's going to hang around next hour as well. We'll continue our home improvement uh, show uh, thanks to Linda's Construction on this holiday weekend. Uh, again, text or call, same number, 651-989-9226. Here's a text, Barry. Uh, what are the options and cost considerations regarding metal siding versus painting on a two-story home? I don't know about the, the, the cost. Well, that, that's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I've been looking at metal siding and thinking, how long is a person going to be in the home? Are we, how, what's our selling cycle going to look like? And in my mind, if you're going to sell in the next five years, you're painting, you're not replacing. There's just no sense in, in replacing something unless you plan to be in there for, you know, 15 to 20 years. That makes sense. Because you're looking at the maintenance cycle and saying, will the market care whether it's metal or whether it's a painted siding material? Now, if your siding is deteriorating, let's say it's hardboard, you know, the 60s hardboard, we sometimes refer to it as masonite. That's a brand name, not a product, of course. And we go, oh, masonite's terrible. And the reality is it was a product that was designed to last 20 years. Well, it lasted 40, and we're mad. You know, it wasn't designed to last 50 or 60 years. And so I think we should just change our expectations, frankly, and recognize that if it's a 20-year product, it's a 20-year product. But most people look at siding and think the siding that was installed when my house was put in should last for the life of the house. Well, that's just crazy. Unless it's masonry, stone, stucco, brick, it's not going to do that. So now the question is, what do I expect out of my material? And if I can get the right expectation, I can decide, make the decision much more easily. In my mind, the price tag to put metal on makes sense at the beginning, but people who get tired of the color decided to paint their metal siding. And once you've painted metal siding, you're back into a painting cycle. 
So there's going to be a deterioration of whatever you put on the surface. And so in my mind, metal siding doesn't, isn't a panacea. It's not going to solve the problem of, of a maintenance cycle unless I decide I don't want to – I'll be out of the house before I have to repaint this. So in, it's, in my mind, I, I don't care. I mean, it's like if you want metal siding, put metal siding on the house. Now, what about your home? You said it was in 1905? Mine's 1905. 1905. Yeah. What kind of siding? Well, uh, I made and the— And have you had to work on it? Yeah, well, no, no, no. I had—when I bought the home, it had the old-style asbestos uh, siding tiles that were on the house. And that was fiber cement, by the way, one of the earliest versions of fiber cement. Now there's a big company that makes fiber cement siding, and we know that brand name, James Hardy. And I don't know who made mine, but Hardy was around making that stuff a long time ago. So I don't know if this was this. But this is a fiber cement asbestos-based material. I took those off piece by piece by piece. You did? Yep, and salvaged those, got rid of that. And then underneath it, I had the old wood clabbered siding. So I had a two-and-three-quarter-inch reveal on fir pieces, not cedar or redwood, but fir pieces. And I restored that where I could, pulled it off, and then I took eight-inch hardboard Simple hardboard siding, and I ripped it down the center at four-inch increments, and then I top-stapled everything in place so that my house would look like that clabbered siding. But I was able to do my entire house, which is 3,000 square feet, for 600 bucks. Wow. But I did all the work myself. I love stories like that. I know. That. Well, because I'm on a budget. I had yeah. kids. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, a few kids. A few. A few. Yeah. We just kept having a few more. <laughs> <laughs> so we needed ever-increasing budget options. Well, I tell you what, Barry, as I said, is going to be hanging around uh, next hour. We're going to have an extended version of our home improvement show, thanks to Linda's construction. So keep that in mind, and uh, we'll pick up on more uh, text messages and phone calls. Same number for either. If you want to call and chat with Barry or send him a text. Both works, 651-989-9226, and we'll uh, take a break. 